Welcome to the Industries in Motion podcast from RBC Capital Markets, where we'll be exploring what's new and what's next in today's fast-moving markets and industries to help you stay ahead of the curve. Please listen to the end of this podcast for important disclaimers. My name is Andre Hardy, and I am head of Canadian and Asia-Pacific research. Let's get into today's episode. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest, Paul Triber. Paul is a director at RBC Capital Markets and is responsible for our equity research coverage of the Canadian technology sector, which spans nearly everything from hardware to software to services and the internet. Paul has nearly two decades of experience in equity research and has consistently been among the top ranked analysts in investor surveys in the Canadian technology space. Today, we'll be discussing the state of the technology sector in general, and more specifically, technology in Canada. Paul, over the last 20 years, technology stocks have represented an average of just 4% of the S&P TSX composite. Two years ago, you published a report saying that technology was overtaking the S&P TSX composite index, and the sector rose to a peak of 12% of the index in November 2021. Now, technology is back down to just 6% of the index, and this June, you published a report called Finding Opportunities in the Sell-Off. What happened over the last two years to drive this rise and fall of the technology in equity markets? Yeah, thanks very much, Andre, for having me on. Uh, it seems like when you look back over the last two years, technology definitely experienced some indigestion. You know, in all seriousness, what we experienced over the last two years was nothing short of incredible. You know, there's a massive positive step function increase in technology adoption due to the disruption from COVID. At the same time, risk-free rates dropped to generational lows. Now, what this did is lead to valuation multiples on technology stocks, specifically the S&P 500 technology index, increased about 40% compared to the pre-COVID average. However, for some companies, particularly those that are high growth and unprofitable, the increase was even more substantial. For example, Shopify's trading valuation multiple doubled immediately prior to its COVID peak to November 2021. Then, in the last six months, we had risk-free rates double from 1.5% to 3%. Plus, we are now facing a possible recession. Technology stocks are long-duration assets, and some of the highest-growth stocks are unprofitable. So valuations were maximized in a low-interest-rate environment and then disproportionately impacted by the rapid rise in risk-free rates. We estimate that approximately 60% of the decline in our coverage universe reflects the rise in risk-free rates. The remaining 40% of the decline reflects concerns regarding a recession. Evaluation multiples for tech stocks have dropped significantly from their highs. For the S&P 500, valuations are now back in line with their pre-COVID multiples. However, for high growth and unprofitable tech stocks, valuation multiples are substantially below their pre-COVID averages. For example, Shopify is now trading 60% below its pre-COVID average. Inflation, rising interest rates, recession risks, they're all certainly key areas of focus across um, most sectors at present. But narrowing it to the technology sector, what are the main implications, Paul? Yeah, good question. Uh, so 
For most of the technology companies, they sell to businesses, so small, medium businesses and enterprises. And so our view is, is that while some projects may be delayed in a recessionary environment, we believe that the re revenues for the majority of technology companies would be mostly resilient to a recessionary slowdown. The challenge that many of the earlier stage and admittedly fastest growing technologies face is on the cost side. Many of these companies are burning cash or are unprofitable because there's a mentality of growth at all costs over the last several years. For many of these companies, they now need to tighten their belts and cut spending in areas that are the lowest priorities. And there's been several articles on high profile technology companies, even very large ones uh, like Google and Facebook implementing hiring freezes. Smaller companies will need to reduce their cash burn because at this point they can't rely on external financing uh, through either new equity offerings this year or perhaps next year as well. So the cash burn of many of these smaller, rapidly growing companies, plus the potential of slower, though still positive growth, is leading uh, to a significant risk-off sentiment for technology stocks at the moment. I hear what you're saying about the impact of valuations from interest rates, but I do want to delve further into your outlook for the resiliency of tech spending. Tech spending didn't look so resilient in the years following the dot-com boom. What's different now? Yeah, really good question, Andre. So back in the dot-com days, many companies were very early stage. You know, in some cases, these companies didn't have revenues even. Many were just concept companies, and they didn't have the luxury of time to see many of these concepts to fruition. But you know, ultimately, many of these concepts did emerge. You know, look at e-commerce, for example. You know, back in 1999, U.S. e-commerce was only a $150 billion market, or just 5% of retail sales. You know, last year in the U.S., e-commerce rose to $1.2 trillion, uh, or you know, almost 10 times the size, or the equivalent of 18% of retail sales. You know, another fundamental difference is the nature of revenue. So back in the early 2000s and late 90s, the majority of technology was sold on a one-time basis. So hardware and software were purchased outright and the buyer managed it themselves. You know, often the replacement cycle was several years. So sales were quite cyclical. You know, in comparison, the majority of software deployments are now hosted in the cloud and sold on a SaaS basis. SaaS stands for software as a service and buyers sign a contract and pay on a monthly basis to use the software, much like a cell phone. While the upfront revenue to vendors is less on this model, it provides a steady stream of cash flows while the customer is using the software. The break-even is typically three years. However, unlike the old model, this model greatly reduces cyclicality and smooths revenue over multiple years. Now you might ask, well, what if customers cancel the contracts and leave? Well, that is always a potential risk. I think that's partly what the market fears here. You know, if the economy gets really bad, it's not just that growth slows, but that customers may leave outright or perhaps even go bankrupt. Our view is, is that that is a potential risk, but I think the reality is that the risk is relatively low. So inherently, software is quite sticky after you deploy it. Companies deploy software to address a specific business process. It is more cost efficient and effective to address business processes using software than using manual processes. 
So realistically, you know, unless companies go bankrupt, we think that they are unlikely to stop using software that they have already deployed. Well, those are pretty important differences. Um, thanks for going through that. I do want to switch gears a little bit. Um, and perhaps if we focus on the Canadian technology sector specifically, where do you see Canada in the global tech ecosystem? Yeah, it's interesting. The technology in Canada has always been very idiosyncratic. You know, we've had three very large technology companies in Canada over the last 20, 30 years. That's Nortel, BlackBerry, and Shopify. However, probably one of the bigger changes is that, you know, we've had hundreds and perhaps thousands of smaller technology companies, um, and probably more so in, in recent years. You know, in many cases, you know, these smaller companies were innovative, uh, but had difficulty scaling. And part of that reflects the risk-averse mentality of Canadians. You know, we tend to focus on profitability, you know, as opposed to making big, perhaps riskier bets. So as a result, we end up with far fewer large companies uh, than what you see uh, perhaps in the U.S. However, what's interesting is that it seems to be get, we, we're getting better each generation. We're seeing more and more Canadian tech companies. And part of that reflects the increasing size of global tech markets, but also the fact now that you don't need a lot of scale to start a software or a cloud company. You mentioned BlackBerry. Um, that's a company that you covered through significant changes in its business strategy and in the relative popularity of its devices. What can we learn about the evolution of the industry from looking at the BlackBerry story? Yeah, we think BlackBerry is a great example, and it really illustrates how the market has changed over time. So BlackBerry was, when it started, predominantly a hardware company called RIM, or Research in Motion, and it sold smartphones. You know, as everyone knows, you own a phone for two or three years, and then you buy a new one. Um, now, there were some aspects of BlackBerry that were somewhat sticky, uh, like BBM, or BlackBerry Messenger, but overall, in that era, there was very low switching costs. You can switch from one phone to another phone. Uh, and there wasn't an ecosystem where customers were locked into the device. So when something better came along, when another device um, was better than a BlackBerry, customers switched. Now, what's interesting is that the downfall of BlackBerry from the rise of the iPhone is completely aligned with the philosophy of one of the, the, the books and authors, Clayton Christensen's book, Innovator's Dilemma. So what, what happened to BlackBerry was, it was listening to its customers at the time, who were predominantly the telcos and enterprises. Carriers wanted an anti-iPhone, something that was light on the network. Enterprises wanted a long battery life and security. And at that time, the iPhone was a complete opposite. So BlackBerry was giving the customers, uh, the, the telcos and the enterprises, exactly what they wanted. Now, in terms of execution, because BlackBerry felt that it was differentiated, it never tried to match the innovations of the iPhone until it was too late. Also, at the same time, bring your own device really impacted the usage of BlackBerry among many enterprises and professional consumers. So execution was incredibly important for the rise of the iPhone and the downfall of BlackBerry. Execution also explains the success of Android, um, which did capture a lot of share along with the iPhone. So when iPhone was launched, Android was, was actually emulating the design of BlackBerry, um, but Android very quickly pivoted 
to touchscreens to match the iPhone. As a result, iPhone and Android now dominate the smartphone market. What's even more interesting, we think, is that BlackBerry still exists today as a software company. The market structure for software is far more attractive than hardware. So with enterprise software, customers switch far less frequently, and so BlackBerry had time to pivot its business to support multiple devices. You know, and this really illustrates the attractiveness of software as a business model that I described earlier. Interesting. Now, shifting gears again, COVID has been a tremendous accelerator for the adoption of new technologies in Canada and globally. Now, do you fear this was just a one-off event due to unique circumstances? You know, definitely COVID was a driver of adoptions of all sorts of technologies. Um, you know, video conferencing is the best way to address your question. You know, video conferencing has probably existed in some form or another for the last 20 years, um, but it was very difficult to use, so, you know, rarely anyone used it. Corporations had these special $100,000 video conferencing rooms, but they would only communicate with other similar proprietary systems, and so it was fine within the same company, but you couldn't reach anyone outside that. You know, in the years right before COVID, we began to see some innovations in, in video conferencing, like FaceTime for consumers or Zoom uh, for consumers and businesses. Um, and what really helped Zoom here is that anyone could video conference with anyone else using a, a web browser. And then with COVID, you know, usage skyrocketed. You know, all in-person meetings were basically canceled and had to switch to video conferencing. And usage probably went from less than 1% to nearly 100% of all meetings. Now, I think what's probably more important for adoption was than the actual technology is that business practices changed. So industry regulations were changed to accommodate video conferencing um, you know, across multiple industries. A great example is doctor appointments um, you know, were during COVID, and, and it looks like it's even persisting, are now permitted to be conducted virtually. So addressing your question, you know, will that remain permanent going forward? Now, in some cases, I can see businesses and others moving back to in-person meetings. You know, we as humans long for personal relationships and, you know, are admittedly difficult to establish through virtual means. However, for many other meetings, you know, where there's logistical challenges or where relationships have already been established, you know, video conferencing will persist. You know, will usage remain at 100 percent? You know, probably not. Um, however, it's likely to remain a key communication means for many people. You know, the efficiency gains from video conferencing are just too great to ignore, and the business practices are already now in place. So video conferencing is a good example where usage went to nearly 100% during the peak of the COVID social, um, social distancing measures. What about other technologies where adoption increased, but usage is still well below 100%? And how do you see the adoption of these technologies progressing? There are two great examples of what you described. The first is e-commerce and the second is the cloud. Let's start first with e-commerce. In the last several years ahead of COVID, e-commerce penetration in the US was growing at about 100 basis points per annum. In 1999, e-commerce penetration was 14% of total retail sales in the US. It jumped to 18% in 2020 and 2021. So it's basically four years of penetration in a single year. Now, does it go back to a lower level of penetration? You know, we believe that's unlikely. 
You know, you look at the, the, the June quarter, the data this year, uh, U.S. e-commerce sales are up basically 9% year over year. Total retail sales are up about 8.5% year over year. So even though there's a you know, full quarter of, of reopening, um, you know, e-commerce is still one, increasing year over year, and two, growing slightly faster than retail sales. You know, and that implies rising penetration. You know, why is that? You know, I think it's, it's so easy to buy online now. For me personally, I'm frankly just accustomed to buying things on my phone and then waiting a day or two for them to show up at my front door. I find it much easier than going to a store. Now, it's not 100% because there are always things that you need right away uh, and it's easier to go out to a store. In addition to changing behaviors, the other element is that e-commerce innovation continues. The ordering process now is far smoother. You know, a good example of that is uh, the, your credit card information is now saved. Shipping is generally pretty good in most regions, you know, typically one to two days later. Uh, and then even things like returns, which have always been a struggle, are getting better. Additionally, you know, when you look at e-commerce, it is really good at capturing conversions. And conversions is, is really important for digital advertising. You know, what this is is uh, ads on Facebook and Instagram are really convincing uh, and drive exposure to new brands. You know, there's many of these out there, but the, the best examples are probably uh, brands like Allbirds or Kylie Cosmetics. Uh, and it also has, uh, you know, driving a, a number of impulse buys. You know, here's a question for you, Andre. Andre, have you ever considered, uh, have you ever purchased anything online as an impulse? Uh, the timing of that question is pretty funny. I had a, a quiet morning Saturday, and uh, yes, is the answer to your question. I just purchased uh, golf shoes totally on an impulse um, just this Saturday morning. Yeah, so that's a great example. I mean, it's just you know another one of those things where you wouldn't think you'd be buying it a couple years ago online, um, but you now are. And this also leads into another conversation just on the emergence of new direct-to-consumer brands that have been largely enabled through e-commerce and online advertising. Anyhow, this is, um, you know, we think e-commerce is, uh, adoption is still very early. You know, 18% penetration implies that there's a lot of retail sales that aren't made online, and we think there's, you know, good long-term growth there. The second example that I mentioned is uh, cloud software. You know, this is referring to enterprise software that is deployed in the cloud. You know, the vast majority of software that we use at, at you know, using a, a large bank, for example, RBC, uh, is on-premise, meaning you know, we're running it on a server and that we access through our PCs or, or through a client, uh, and this is what's called client-server. This is um, you know, the technology that's been deployed over the last 20, 30 years. You know, we have a handful of applications that are entirely cloud-based uh, that we access through a, a web browser. You know, in, in 2018, McKinsey wrote that a report that indicated that just 40% of companies have moved more than 10% of their workloads to the public cloud, and 80% plan to move more than 10% uh, over the next three years. Now, through COVID, cloud adoption has increased, and the reason is that obviously accessing software through a web browser is much easier, or it's a necessity when you're working remotely. According to McKinsey, again, in a 2021 survey, 
65% of surveyed organizations increased their cloud budgets through COVID, and 55% moved more workloads to the cloud than they had initially planned. Additionally, 40% of companies expect to increase their pace of deployments going forward. By 2024, surveyed respondents aspire to have cloud spend account for 80% of their total hosting costs. And for the cloud, the benefits are usability and lower costs. And the cloud is very easy to deploy and probably more importantly to scale. Organizations don't need to worry about managing hardware and the infrastructure like they did in the past with servers that they, they did in-house. Additionally, it is very easy to support a diverse and virtual workforce using cloud software. So adoption is likely to continue to rise going forward. We've spent a lot of time um, discussing specific trends that were accelerated through COVID. Um, if we take a step back and, and try to forget about COVID, which obviously is impossible to do, but if we try to do that um, from a high level, what are the drivers for continued technology adoption over the long term? And what gives you confidence in that outlook? Yeah, this is, this is a great question. You know, I'd say first, look at the historical trends. So since 1980, U.S. GDP has increased 5% per annum on average. You know, in comparison, U.S. investment in intellectual property, you know, and that, that includes technology, rose 6% per annum over the same time frame. So technology spending is growing faster than the broader economy. Technology investments have increased from 2% of U.S. GDP in 1980 to 5% last year. Now, the fundamental driver of technology spending is productivity. Organizations deploy technology to enable improved productivity. You know, ERP systems, for example, automate the recording of transactions and accounting related to that. Now, you could say that some forms of technology don't drive productivity improvements, something like a smartphone. However, you know, I think the opposite is the case. You know, consumers are far more in touch and effectively productive using a smartphone. You know, checking Instagram, for example, is far easier using an app on your phone than sitting down at a computer. You get a notification, you know, immediately if, if something changes. That ease of use, you know, ultimately has resulted in far increased usage, um, you know, which implies, you know, better productivity. However, you know, it does immediately consume a lot of time for some people. Um, and for some organizations, you know, smartphones have improved productivity. You know, even more so when companies have cloud applications where employees can access through apps on their phones. Another driver is digital transformation. You know, the vast majority of companies have not made meaningful investments in transforming their fundamental business processes. For example, you know, when you look at, look at automotive, uh, Tesla's ordering process is entirely through the cloud. The initial car purchase is through the cloud or you're using a web browser. The deposit is made on a website using a credit card. You know, when the final payment happens, it happens through a wire transfer at a bank, uh, and that is effectively in the cloud from Tesla's point of view. You know, in comparison, using another example, um, you know, looking at, you know, signing up for a credit card, you know, or completing a mortgage application, or even uh, making that wire transfer for a car, you know, that for the most part is done in person at banks across Canada. 
So you can say that you know technology uh, usage and deployment is still early stages for the vast majority of companies. When you look at the driver of that, you know technology is driven by new entrants. So the ease of use due to technology ultimately becomes industry standard. You know laggards in the industry either catch up or they lose share. You know this is what gives rise to the expression "software is eating the world." You know, technology or effectively software disrupt and improve industries for the better. You know, and this is ultimately what gives us confidence in long-term technology adoption. Market forces will continue to drive the adoption of new technologies from a competitive or a cost point of view. It has happened in the past, and we think there's a long way for future adoption. You have a unique. Uh, perspective where you get to see a fairly early or get an early heads up on a, on a lot of technologies that are being developed. Um, so what right now, uh, what new technologies are getting you excited? What's on the bleeding edge of technology adoption right now? Yeah, I'd say I wouldn't be a technology analyst if I didn't mention blockchain. Uh, so now, you know, we think blockchain is, is searching for its soul somewhat. It needs a killer use case. You know, Bitcoin and the various digital currencies out there, you know, have their fans, um, but it's a little bit outside of my, you know, realm in terms of thinking about, uh, you know, enterprises deploying software. I do think, though, an interesting use case for blockchain uh, and also NFTs uh, is something called token-gated commerce. And this is where an organization can sell special access through a token but because it is a token, a secondary market can emerge. Now, we think this is a really interesting opportunity. And the best example uh, or use case that I can think currently is the secondary market for the right to become a season ticket holder. You know, in that case, you are reliant on a third party validating that you indeed you know, are buying or selling a right that is legitimate. Um, however, you know, season tickets are well established and there's a fairly large secondary market. You know, but hypothetically, with token gated commerce, a secondary market could emerge for all sorts of memberships. Additionally, I think another interesting possibility is the metaverse. You know, I think it's still a, a ways out there, but it's possible that people could engage in a completely alternative reality. And you see it somewhat, you know, with various video games that are out there. Um, you can also say that that TikTok or social media is also an alternative reality. Now, for the metaverse, it's still very early. We think we need to see more enabling hardware technologies like augmented reality or virtual reality, and that's somewhat similar to smartphones. You know, smartphones existed for ten years before the iPhone came around, um, but it was really the iPhone and multi-touch that led to mass market adoption. So if everyone starts using the metaverse, you get the enabling technology, at a certain point in the future, you could see commercialization and monetization within the metaverse. Well, Paul, that was a really interesting discussion. Um, I like how you highlighted how we're still early in the adoption of many technologies and why technology could play an increasingly larger role in the game funding markets in the future. So thank you very much for your insight uh, into how the significant structural changes in the sector are impacting us. What else lies ahead in today's ever-evolving markets and industries? We'll be keeping track right here on Industries in Motion. Until then, thank you for joining us on this episode recorded on July 25th, 2022. And please make sure you subscribe to Industries in Motion wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
If you'd like to continue this conversation or you're interested in more information, please contact your RBC representative directly or visit our website at www.rbccm.com forward slash industries in motion. Thank you very much. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.